0: But you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So, thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. All right. You said you had a question for me.
1: I did have a question for you. Have you ever had. An experience where you thought you were through the hardest part of something, but you were wrong. Like it actually hadn't even started.
0: (laughs) You mean like last year? Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, like totally. It's funny that this week or like in the next few days, I think it will have been a year exactly, Mm -hmm. you know, since since uh there was that, you know, for us, it was a, like a Wednesday afternoon when we found out the kids would need to come home from school. And like, I just have that such a clear memory of being out like on a beautiful spring day. Cause like last spring, I mean, thank God during that, clo- during, you know, that, that first closure, like the weather was at least pretty wonderful for Seattle. Mm-hmm. And and I just remember being out in the warm sun, talking to our good friend, our, our, our next door neighbor, you know, our kids are, like, we're figuring out how to become teachers. And I just remember being so grateful for the sun at that stage hmm. just because, like, it was there. And I remember saying out loud, like, oh, well, good thing this, this whole thing didn't happen in, in November. And <laughs> that we get to, like, at least have this lockdown during this nice weather and, and like, maybe into the summer. And it'll be good, right? And <laughs> And then I remember... <laughs> Going into lockdown again, and or or like you know, having all the restrictions coming back in place in November, just being like, Oh no, (laughs) like it came true. You know, I think that 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 for me is it's been such an interesting level of that because, like, when you say when you throw that out, that's like immediately where my mind's gone to. I mean, I could go to like think of like all the things I've done in the mountains where things went haywire, and yeah, there's there's a bunch of those stories, but this year has been like the slow motion. Version
2: mm-hmm.
0: of that, I feel like, where it just it'd be like, okay, okay, cool. Like, here's the plan: we're all gonna, you know, shelter in place and make the most of it, and then things will be good. I just remember sort of telling myself, well, this will be over, you know. And then that slow realization of just being like, oh man, no, you got you got more ground to cover. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, and it's like, I mean, even funny when you think about it, it's like those numbers of cases, Mm -hmm. it was almost like a false summit. You know, like it was like, okay, it's starting to go down, things will be okay. And then there's this like other one out there that was even bigger and further away.
1: And I feel like throughout it we've all been like, oh well, this'll get easier by the summer. This'll be over by the fall. Like it's gonna get easier from here. And I feel like my mentality has shifted through it, from what I I remember this time last year as well, kind of feeling like that, like unexpectedly signed up for a sprint kind of thing where you're like, oh God, well this is going to be a ride, um, but it's going to be like, how can I learn from this in the next three weeks that the country's shut down? Okay, how can I learn from this for the next month that the, you know, and then like pushing that back, pushing that back until it's like a slow, very long run where you're just like, okay, how can I? Yeah be slow enough and gentle enough with myself and my work and my stamina that that I, I'm not even thinking about like the end as much anymore. Yeah, It's just like, I don't know, everything's slowed down. And for me, it feels like a feat of endurance in some way, you know, of like, okay, that first fall summit felt so scary, but getting over that and then being like, oh my gosh, there are three other ones that we still have to climb Yeah, and they're <laughs> scarier. Is like the fear has almost settled more yeah. than it was for that first smaller one, yeah. which is weird.
0: Yeah. no, it's and it's so funny because like uh, coming back to the you know, we're sort of joking about that the, the false summit side of it, of that feeling of it. And I do think that there's there's something like when I was younger as a climber, I would go in to a bigger climb you know something that was like challenging there was like oh you know right on that cusp of being like well you could get benighted and it could get epic and you know mm-hmm. it, and I would sort of come up with plans and we'll we'll be at this pitch by this hour and da 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 and, and I would try to make the day flow by that and it never totally worked out like that I mean some, some days it did some days it went faster some days it went slower mm-hmm. but I like I think as I aged I just realized like nah this is it's like this is actually what makes this interesting is that you're sort of in the possession of something else. Yeah, You know, that, that you're in this moment where it's like, you can either accept that feeling of being like, not being totally in control, mm-hmm. and that there's something special in that too. You know, yeah. like in it, yeah.
1: No, there's it, totally it, a wisdom to that. Cause I feel yeah. like it's funny people now, when when a plan doesn't work out or something, they're like oh I'm so sorry like sorry to get your hopes up like I actually can't come or whatever I'm like oh (laughs) I've doesn't matter to me like I've spent this entire year canceling plans like one after the other just canceling stuff to the point where it's like all right like if it works awesome but if it doesn't I'm going to stay flexible and there are a million other ways that I could pivot today and I feel like that has I guess I'm getting to, like, the upsides of this year in my uh, interior world. But, like, the upside is that I do feel like I'm listening better, you know, just to, like, every moment of, like, okay, well, maybe I can't do this. But but I can be really happy sitting here and reading my book for an hour. Like, that's awesome. Or yeah, just doing something else. And I feel like there is a wisdom to be to just realizing. And I think it's an illusion most of the time that we're actually in control of our plans and we get attached to that of like, oh, I know. And it sometimes works out that everything does go to plan. And so you kind of get this false (laughs) sense of security that you are in control, but I don't think that we are as much as we think. And this year has certainly been a pretty stout reminder that there's a lot at play that's bigger than us. And I feel like how you respond and react to that is almost more telling of like the, yeah, the inner listening or the inner peace that you have to move through something difficult.
0: I couldn't agree more. That's so well said, Cordelia, Hmm. which kind of brings us back to today's story.
1: Yeah. So we have a story today about a plan that did not go as expected and the lessons learned from letting go. And just a quick warning that there is some adult mountaineering language in this one. I'm Fitzcall. I'm Cordelia Zars.
0: And you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
1: Gabe Messercola and Ryan Wichens have been friends since kindergarten. Here's Ryan.
2: Somebody sat us together on the school bus and that was kind of it.
1: (laughs) For years, Gabe got off the bus at Ryan's house. They deposit their backpacks on the front step and then dart into the nearby woods where they lived in upstate New York.
2: And my mom likes to joke that there are probably still some pairs of Gabe's socks floating around my parents' house. We would get off the school bus and go wander into the woods and inevitably come back, like, with our socks brown, like, trashed. And they would go into—my mom would do his laundry, and they would just, like, end up in weird places in my house, some of Gabe's socks.
1: As they got older, Ryan and Gabe began finding adventure further afield. In middle school, they discovered geocaching, a kind of outdoor treasure hunt people do with a GPS searching for geocache treasure took Ryan and Gabe to trailheads in the Adirondack Mountains. This is Gabe.
3: And then once those trailheads started taking us up mountains, we hit a point where we we're like, screw geocaching. Like, let's, just, let's just go hike these mountains. These are, these are so cool.
1: Soon, Gabe and Ryan set their sights on climbing the 46 tallest peaks in the Adirondacks. Once they'd done that, they did many of them again, in winter. They learned to ice climb and tested out their winter mountaineering skills on New Hampshire's Mount Washington, famous for its gnarly weather.
2: So eventually we went out and climbed Mount Rainier, and that combined with everything else that we had learned in the Northeast, in the Adirondacks or in, in the White Mountains, we kind of felt like we had enough of our own personal skills to go out and do something on our own. And Alaska was obviously the coolest place that we could come up with to do that.
1: When they were 18 and 19 years old, Gabe and Ryan worked at their local gear shop in Stillwater, New York. One evening, they pulled a map of Denali National Park off the shelf and unfolded it on the table.
2: Pretty quickly found these two peaks that, based on what we could find, seemed like they were within our ability levels. They weren't tremendously technically difficult or anything. And so we kind of gravitated towards those. And then in looking at a map, we kind of drew a line between these two peaks that we knew we could climb and asked why couldn't we just go from one to the other along this ridgeline because it looked like it was totally doable even if we couldn't find very much information.
1: The peaks Ryan's talking about are Mount Silverthrone and Mount Brooks. They stand at a little over 13 and 11,000 feet respectively, and they look across a glacier at Mount Denali. To cross from one mountain to the other along the ridgeline, they'd have to summit three other peaks along the way. For a year, Gabe and Ryan planned out their trip. They took courses in ice climbing, mountaineering, and crevasse rescue, studied maps and weather reports, poured over as many American Alpine Journal trip reports as they could find. They called climbing rangers in the park and learned that a spicy crux midway through the traverse had thwarted mountaineers before them. But Gabe and Ryan had mountaineered enough to feel confident in their ability to navigate it, and confident in their humility to turn around if they needed to. They nailed down a window for their trip, 21 days starting in late June 2015. They applied for backcountry permits and began planning out mileage estimates for each day, camp spots, and routes up the mountains.
2: Not too long before we left, we started to get like actual confirmation that nobody had completed this ridgeline. That wasn't something we were looking for. We... I think, or at least I definitely had the humility to not really be striving for a first ascent on my first trip to Alaska. We kind of stumbled into
1: it. But they pushed ahead with their planning, creating spreadsheets for food and gear prep.
2: Let's just try and be as organized about it as possible and plan out every single day and organize our food in a similar way and... The overriding mentality that we went into planning this trip with was, you know, how structured can we possibly make it?
1: The winter before they were set to depart, Gabe and Ryan brought two other friends on board for the trip, Jeff Lyman and Greg Zegas. Greg and Jeff wouldn't climb the peaks with them, but they would help manage base camp operations and the wilderness first aid. As for training...
3: You know, I was out hiking a lot in college and I had a very active lifestyle, but there was no formal preparation or training. It just sort of felt like, well, we have the route, we have our itinerary, we have two people who are gonna help us get up there. And once we're there, we got this.
1: On June 26th, 2015, Gabe, Ryan, Greg, and Jeff flew to Anchorage, and hopped on a bus up to Denali National Park. They camped out, and the next morning caught the first bus into the park. They asked the driver to drop them off on the side of the road, near the base of the Muldrow Glacier.
2: The morning that we started out, the fog had kind of lifted, and we could see the mountain. Towering over every, and we could pick out all the mountains that we were planning on climbing and everything too. So that was our first, like, wow, that's it. That's where we're going.
1: Their plan was to spend three or four days hiking up the Muldrow Glacier to where it meets the Brooks Glacier, where they'd set up their base camp. Because they had so much gear, the team planned to shuttle every day, take one load in, hike back to their last camp, and hike in another load. They'd repeat that process until they got all their stuff to base camp. After a few nights at base camp, they'd follow the Brooks Glacier towards Mount Silverthrone. Greg and Jeff would stay midway up the Brooks Glacier at what would be Advanced Base Camp, while Ryan and Gabe split off to begin the traverse. They allowed themselves eight days to get from Mount Silverthrone to Mount Brooks, summiting West Pyramid, Central Pyramid, and East Pyramid Peaks along the way. Then back to base camp and one full day to hike out to the park road. They packed enough food for three weeks, which gave them a generous buffer if an accident happened or bad weather rolled in. In Denali National Park, there are few established trails. So the guys set their eyes on the Muldrow Glacier and started bushwhacking through wet vegetation with their 70-pound packs.
2: I can't remember at what point we were expecting to like put our crampons on and start walking on snow. But I think it was fairly quickly in that first day that we realized, oh, that's probably not going to happen here. The glacier at that low elevation was basically vegetated like scree hills. There was ice, but it was under maybe
3: half a foot of loose debris.
1: For hours, the team gingerly navigated the glaciated scree giant rock piles ranging from pebbles to boulders, resting on slippery ice, surrounded by small moats. They took advantage of Alaska's endless summer daylight to hike into the night, and then found a place to set up camp. They hadn't gotten nearly as far as they hoped to on day one, but they kept their spirits high, expecting to round a bend the next day that would reveal the snowy runway leading them up to base camp. Instead, they got several more days of the scree.
2: Generally, we just beat ourselves up really, really badly within the very first week of this trip. It was incredibly difficult terrain. We were moving incredibly heavy loads. It took us so much longer than we had expected to. It rained. It was cold. We came to Alaska to Mountaineer. And it did not feel like that's even remotely what we were doing at that point. We were just beating ourselves into the ground, doing some heinous version of backpacking. Yeah. And it, it was very, very brutal. I'm wet
3: and eating not fully yeah. cooked dehydrated food, even though
2: you could have boiled it, but... <laughs> I'm not going to go there right now. Hiked all day today in the rain. I think we may have just made the transition to type 3 fun. Yeah.
1: On July 4th, the guys finally staked down base camp at the confluence of the Muldrow and Brooks glaciers. They made it to snow. And the rain that had drizzled down on them for the past week, it began to clear.
3: I mean, that was by far the coolest 4th of July I've I've ever had because we, you know, we finally pushed off the Muldrow scree mounds and saw our highway, our, our glacial highway and got to see Mount Brooks and see the route coming down Mount Brooks where we'd finished the trip and sort of were able to really put eyes on this, on the reason we were there after sort of suffering for a while. So our morale picked up. It it was beautiful. The weather cleared and the stars kind of seemed to align for us to continue pushing, finally put our crampons on and start getting into our element to do the the traverse.
1: The team had planned to take a rest day at base camp, but when they saw the weather report for the next few days, they decided to push on. Conditions looked sunny and clear for Gabe and Ryan to start their eight-day traverse. So the next morning, Ryan, Gabe, Jeff and Greg all hiked halfway up the Brooks Glacier to set up Advanced Base Camp. They spent the night there, and early the next morning, Ryan and Gabe loaded up their packs and split from the group. They spent one night midway between ABC and Silverthrone Coal, where they planned to camp before they summited their first peak. Ryan and Gabe moved fast in the morning, and then slowed down in the afternoon, as the sun warmed the glacier and turned it into a sloppy mess. After some post-holing, they made it to Silverthrone Coal in the afternoon.
2: We dug ourselves in and kind of got comfortable and made plans for that next morning to climb Mount Silverthrone, and then maybe if we were feeling it, come back and break camp and keep going up the other side. Okay, this glacial portion ended up being a little bit more difficult than we thought. We were post-holing and the conditions weren't really good, but we're past it. It's going to be easy.
3: From here, it's going to be easy. And we we said that at pretty much every point on the trip.
1: Early the next morning, they started towards the summit of Mount Silverthrone.
2: That was probably the most emotional day of that climb because finally, like, we're mountaineering. We haven't had any issues today. We felt really good. We felt really secure.
1: With lighter packs, they charged up the steep snow angle and emerged above the clouds.
3: We were going up the northwestern side of the peak, and once we pushed out over and could see over the eastern side, it was extremely emotional because suddenly we had a view, a real view, like we were above we had literally We were on top of something. We had yeah, we yeah. had literally and figuratively gotten above everything that we had been suffering through. And it just sort of Finally felt like we had started the trip. You know, after after a year or plus of planning and this sort of everything feeling like it's going wrong, all of a sudden it it, it was everything was right.
2: Almost fucking there. <laughs> That's the top right behind Gape. Right by that big I'm ass not crying! <laughs> that big ass cornice up there. <laughs> There's Brooks over there looking at it from the south ridge.
3: That's
2: fucking incredible. Way down. You can see our tent down there, a little tiny speck. Base camp, this is the summit.
3: Awesome, good climbing boys. Glad to hear it. How's it look up there?
2: Next to no wind, no clouds above us whatsoever. Clear views everywhere. The fucking huge behind us. See the entire, <laughs> the entire fucking everything.
3: That's great to hear man. Glad you guys got up there. Congrats.
2: Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> We decided we wanted to do some climbing in Alaska, and damn it, we climbed in Alaska. We got to the top of the mountain.
3: Going down Mount Throne. I rolled my knee in a strange way and, you know, had a relatively light pack on that day, but my crampon caught sort of weird descending. And after that little tweak, it started burning and it started feeling very weak. And I I started having some issues with it.
1: Gabe kept an eye on his knee, but didn't mention it to Ryan. They pushed over the second peak on the traverse, West Pyramid, and continued on to Central Pyramid that same day.
2: We got to Central Pyramid Peak And this was the point where we could finally start to put eyes on what was going to be the crux. And we couldn't because it was super cloudy. We ended up hanging out on top of Central Pyramid Peak for most of that day until we could put our eyes on the crux. We didn't really want to drop into it without knowing what we were getting ourselves into clouds cleared that evening. It looked pretty good. We thought we could do it. It was at that point pretty late and we ended up camping basically on the summit of Central Pyramid Peak and then diving into the crux the next morning.
1: The crux, the section between Central and East Pyramid Peaks, no one had ever completed before. Everyone before Gabe and Ryan had been turned around by difficult weather or snow conditions.
3: We really slowed it down, I think mainly because we, in the back of our minds, we knew we were doing a first ascent. But the actual climbing we were doing didn't really stand out to either of us as being super crazy.
1: Gabe and Ryan did a few long repels off snow anchors to get off Central Pyramid.
3: So we are uh, basically at the midpoint of the crux of the climb. Uh, pretty, it took us a while to get down here. Just a lot of rappelling and a lot of really slow sidestepping and traversing down the slope. But we're here now, and now we have to finish out the crux by climbing 850 feet
1: up this guy to the summit.
3: And then we go to Mount Brooks and we're done.
1: Climbing up East Pyramid, they had a short ice pitch and a bit of exposed ridgeline climbing. They navigated a few crevasses and took it one step at a time placing protection as they went. Methodically, Ryan and Gabe finally reached the top.
3: It was certainly a, quite a stunning climb and, and beautiful and definitely the most exposed part of the traverse, but we had built it up, I think, a little bit more in our heads, and I think that's a good thing because we, we slowed down for it, for sure. We, we were prepared. We were, yeah.
2: pre- we were super prepared for it.
1: By midday on day four, Ryan and Gabe stood on top of their fourth peak on the traverse, East Pyramid they became the first known team to make it through the crux. Riding on adrenaline, Ryan and Gabe thought maybe they could get up Brooks and down to base camp that same day. But coming off East Pyramid, they hit a section of icy, exposed down climbing. And at the bottom, they felt too mentally exhausted to push on. So they camped and got some rest to tackle Brooks the next day.
2: Woke up the next morning again with the intention of just, like, should be able to just kind of fly over Brooks and we'll be back down at base camp for lunch. And at this point, the weather wasn't the greatest and the visibility started to decrease. And that south ridge of Mount Brooks ended up being quite a bit more than we expected. It was one of the only parts on this traverse that I think we really got wrong or underestimated it ended up being very exposed and having some serious like kind of knife edgy ridge climbing along it that we did much slower than we had anticipated doing
1: the low visibility materialized into a full-on storm in a whiteout gabe and ryan navigated the narrow ridge towards the summit
3: so you could see just enough to see that the ridge line sort of just plummets into the abyss, and that was it.
2: It was a lot of like little baby steps until I felt like I was too close to the edge, and then little baby steps in the other direction, and slowly kind of working our way up to to the top of Mount Brooks. I remember
3: we had we had zoomed in on our GPS to you know the highest resolution contour lines we could see, and we're looking at that with our map, and at a certain point we kind of just laughed by saying like, well, if it's going up, we're going the right way. And, and that's essentially the mantra we used to get up that ridgeline and it ended up working out and bringing us right to the summit. So we're uh, on Mount Brooks, kind of had a shitty, really low visibility climb up here. There was like no more than 30, 40 feet, but we got up here and it opened up a little bit. So hopefully on the way down, we can get some visibility. And once we get back to base camp, that's the end of the traverse, making us the first team to have ever done it, which is pretty freaking cool. We were spending a fair amount of time on the radios with Greg and Jeff down at the base camp, just sort of just talking, and uh, we're celebrating and, and cheering.
2: and. I think we were like can you cook us up some spam yeah. when we get down there? Fry like, us up a can Jeff of spam. Jeff was going to fry us up a can of spam, and we were super excited about that. we were, I think we were more excited to be done. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Like, we just wanted to, to get out of there. Yep.
1: Ryan and Gabe told Jeff and Greg they'd be back in a few hours for lunch and geared up for the easy climb down. They were not expecting what came next. That's after the break.
0: Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at Ketone.com. Backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out.
3: As we started our descent, very quickly things went sideways. And all of a sudden we found ourselves in an even worse situation than ascending Mount Brooks up the southern ridge, where now it wasn't just a whiteout, it was less visibility, maybe five feet, and heavily snowing. And We're trying to follow our route as best as possible off our GPS, similar to how we had ascended the mountain, but it didn't seem to make sense.
1: A little before noon, Ryan and Gabe stopped to see if they could get a weather report. If they learned the snow would stop soon, they might just hang tight and wait for clearer conditions. If they were due for a big storm, they needed to get off that mountain as fast as they could they were able to reach Greg and Jeff, who gave them the intel that the storm wasn't letting up anytime soon.
2: And I think we got that message and we were immediately like, okay, let's
1: go. Coming off the mountain, Gabe and Ryan stood in the direct line of potential avalanches, rattling off the peak. And with each minute of new snowfall, the risk of an avalanche increased. So they kept shuffling down as hastily as they could.
2: So we got about two-thirds of the way down that ridge. And this is where it was kind of like, okay, something doesn't seem right here. We're not quite in the right place.
1: After stopping for a minute to check the maps, they realized they'd taken the wrong ridge. The ridge Ryan and Gabe took dropped steeply into a basin on the north side of Mount Brooks, instead of the northeast ridge that would have led them back to base camp.
2: And... We were kind of like, well, we can see the bottom. doesn't really make sense to go back up. We couldn't really see where the ridge line that we were supposed to be climbing was anyway. So we just started making V-threads.
1: V-threads are a technique for rappelling off snow or ice. They're made by digging small tunnels in the ice and looping rope through so that you don't have to leave gear in the ice wall as you descend. The snow kept falling through the afternoon and into the evening. Heavy, wet snow. It soaked their clothes through.
3: We very quickly found ourselves on what should have been a two-hour descent, hanging on the side of a vertical face, soaking wet, freezing cold, setting off small storm slab avalanches that we listened roll down the entire peak Sort of just trying to make the best decision on where the next repel should be and trying to link these repels together. I think we ended up doing a dozen repels and uh, it, it became very scary where we didn't know if we were going to be able to get down. I mean, we we just had to make our best decision in a whiteout at what seemed like the best thing to repel off of. And at a certain point, we didn't have enough time. We were so worried about hypothermia that we didn't have time to make V-threads. I, at one point, took a little GoPro video of myself and remember it was sort of a recording for my mom if something happened, where it's just like, this is me hanging on the side of this ice wall, and uh, you know, this might be the last video. There's no audio, it's just sort of me putting my head against the ice. I really wasn't sure if we were going to be able to make it out of that situation.
1: The sun set, casting a dusky light for a few hours around midnight. Gabe and Ryan started leaving ice screws in the wall just to save time. At one point, they popped out under the cloud and got a view into the basin. They peered down the last 80-foot section of cliff to the bottom. They had one picket, a repel device used in snow, and one ice screw left.
2: We were down low enough where there wasn't a whole lot of snow or ice left. So what we ended up doing was taking our last picket and like throwing it in the rocks and then shoveling a bunch of snow on top
3: of it. We had to collect snow from all around the upper part of this bowl to actually form a dead man anchor, but of (laughs) hand-packed snow.
2: And we were thinking clearly enough that we were like okay, we probably shouldn't just dive off of this anchor. Let's, like, put some weight on it. And we ended up lowering a couple backpacks. Within, Not thinking, like, with in mind, what where... happens if the anchor blows and we lose both of our backpacks down the mountain. Now we'll deal with that if it happens.
3: We were willing to blow that anchor, lose all of our gear, and be stuck up on this ledge, 80-foot ledge, no, no clear way down it, with no rope and none of our gear and no anchor gear left we were willing to put ourselves in that situation in favor of getting down because we were that cold.
1: At this point, it was almost 4 a.m. Gabe and Ryan had been moving for 24 hours. Desperation gnawed at their cold, tired limbs.
3: I think lowering the backpacks was really the biggest trust of faith moment I've ever had in my life. It was really a, we have to test it because we're not going to, throw ourselves off it. So either we lose all this stuff and then we have to figure it out from there, or we can't get down.
1: They attached their backpacks to the rope and began lowering them off the cliff.
3: Unbelievably, this anchor held, and I still, it was the, the scariest thing I've ever repelled off of. It was spooky. Maybe yeah. half a foot of snow on a dead man anchor on a picket that we had collected and packed, hand-packed. and No idea how it held. It, just, it should not have held.
1: Ryan and Gabe touched down at the bottom of the cliff. Exhausted, they unclipped their harnesses and began setting up camp, only to realize they'd lost their tent poles on the descent. They threw their sleeping bags inside the crumpled tent body, and immediately fell asleep. Ultimately, the climb off Brooks surprised both Gaber and Ryan. It should have been the easiest part of the Traverse. After a few hours of sleep, Ryan and Gabe packed up their gear and made the final trek back to base camp.
3: Our radios had died as well along this journey, so Greg and Jeff had no idea what had happened. They just knew we got caught in a storm. So they were terrified, and, you know, finally Ryan and I come wandering up through the glacier, stumbling. (laughs) And they they see us, and obviously they both were incredibly emotional because they they didn't know what to do at a certain point. We had a plan for this uh, no communication situation where if a certain amount of time had gone by it probably meant we had something that had happened and they were maybe a day or two away from calling the park service because the last thing we had told them was we'll see you guys in two hours and 24 hours later we (laughs) we come stumbling up to base camp and ryan i think the first thing he said was that was the scariest coldest most miserable 24 hours of my life
2: But we were back at base camp. But we made so, it. Like, so again, we are like, okay, we did it. <laughs> it's going to be easy. We just have to hike out to the road. The hard part's over.
1: The four guys didn't want to deal with the Muldrow Glacier again, the treacherous way they'd hiked in. So they pivoted to a different route, a shorter route out to the road. It was about 20 miles, a long day's hike. After a rest day at base camp, They ate what remained of their food besides a few meals.
2: Sleep for a couple hours and then we were going to start hiking out to the park road that evening so that we could hike overnight and get out to the park road by the first bus in the morning.
1: The team began their hike around 5 p.m.
2: At this point my knee was
3: really hurting and at this point I I felt there was a ligament issue in my knee and um it was extremely painful but I was okay destroying all my ligaments to get to the road and get on a bus and go get a burrito. It just it didn't matter how bad I was hurting my knee cuz we're going to we're going to end today. It's the end of the trip.
2: That was our mentality across the board. Like our boots were wet, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We're wet. Just got to get it's out there a... like we're low on food. We ate a couple chocolate bars that white gas had leaked into. It's gross. We're just going to deal with it. Like, full steam ahead. Let's get to the road. We're going to be there tonight. We will be done.
1: The guys hiked through the night. By early morning, they hit the McKinley River, the last obstacle between them and the park road.
3: We could see the park service buses on on the road and, and some tourists on the other side of the river having picnics. And people within half a mile...
1: The McKinley River isn't your typical river. It forms right off the Muldrow Glacier, snaking through the valley in dozens of fast-moving tongues. Some braids stretch just 15 or 30 feet. Others are more like 60, with drops in water.
2: I think you made a joke about how, like, whatever it takes, let's just, we need those gas station burritos tonight.
1: They made it through most of the rivulets without any issue. The final braid, right before the road, is the largest. Gabe, Ryan, Jeff, and Greg all got in a line, unclipped packs, and linked arms, like the park service instructed them to do. Gabe led, acting as the plow.
3: So about halfway out into the braid, my mountaineering boots just washed out from under me. And all of a sudden I was about chest deep in the water and I just got ripped away from the line.
1: Gabe's backpack dragged him underwater pointed headfirst down the river in a ripping current.
3: Just gulping up this silty, crevasse, 33-degree water, and it was chaotic. And the only thing I was really thinking of in that moment was, I'm going to drown.
1: Gabe wrestled himself out of his backpack straps and swam towards a sandbar.
3: You know, the water had ripped the trekking poles out of my hands. It ripped the watch right off my wrist, and... I was lying on the shore in complete and total shock, freezing cold.
1: Jeff, who stood right behind Gabe in the line, also got washed downstream. Ryan was able to grab his pack and pull Jeff to the shore. Then he and Greg hurried downstream to find Gabe. They peeled off his wet clothes, zipped him into a sleeping bag, and made some hot soup. Gabe fell asleep and slept for almost four hours. The guys camped the night there between the braids of the McKinley River. The next morning, they decided they weren't going to attempt that river crossing again. The only other option was to follow the river east back to its headwaters at the base of the Muldrow Glacier.
2: I remember being incredibly deflated getting back to the Muldrow Glacier because suddenly we're back in this, like, hellscape of crazy scree over ice and Everything that had tortured us for the first full week of the trip, we were back there. We thought we were done with it, but nope, we're back.
1: One mile to go over the river turned into 20. With only a few snacks left in their packs, the guys tried to do it in a single push. Gabe's knee flared up. He wobbled precariously over the tangled landscape.
2: Greg and I kind of huddled and said, this isn't sustainable. We ate most of our food before we came out here because we thought we could do it in a day. We're running on fumes. Gabe is in apparently more excruciating pain than we've seen him on this trip, and we need to do something different. Greg and I kind of said, "Gabe, we got to call you some help."
3: They sat me down and basically said, "Like y- you can't continue. It's it's too dangerous, and um, it it wasn't you know in the best interest of everyone else's safety." for me to be in that situation at that point and called in the park service.
1: They set up camp that evening in the scree fields and waited for the helicopter to come the next morning.
2: I remember that morning before Gabe got picked up, we all kind of were just sitting in the grass above the muldrow. And I remember that being a pretty like weirdly emotional time.
1: With seven miles left to the road, a park ranger and a pilot came to pick up Gabe. They dropped a few MREs for the other guys and flew Gabe off the glacier.
3: And before I knew it, you know, I'm sitting at a, at a ranger station in town while the, the rest of the guys are hiking out and, and finishing up the trip. But I just um, feel like shit. I mean, it. You know, we did this whole trip. Um, we've been together, struggling together the whole time, and it just feels like I took an easy way out. It's kind of just hard to shake that feeling. I didn't, you know, I did this whole whole trip with those guys, and I'm not there to cross the finish line with them and to push through the hard time and uh, finish it out. So I'm kind of struggling with that right now um, just just feel really shitty about it I felt ashamed I felt like I should have pushed myself harder and one of the biggest mantras of, of Denali National Park is around self-rescue so my main goal going into this expedition was to not get rescued and when I had to get taken out seven miles to go on the very last day of the trip I felt that I should have pushed myself harder, and I I didn't empty my tank.
2: I think we were confident in the decision that we were making at that point, and as soon as Gabe got picked up and they dropped us a little bit of food, we ate something, and we're like, just like this overwhelming sense of like, we need to fucking finish this thing. And we flew.
1: Later that afternoon, Ryan, Greg, and Jeff climbed the final hill back onto the park road.
2: It was hard not having Gabe there. To some sense, I was feeling the same thing that Gabe was feeling. Like, we all kind of, as a team, we didn't do it. You know, we couldn't all get there.
1: With everybody safely out of the park, the guys reunited at the ranger station and started packing up to fly home. Six years later, Ryan and Gabe are living in Ridgeway, Colorado, training for an expedition up Mount Denali this coming May. As they prepare to climb the mountain that looked down on all their successes and mistakes in 2015, they're re-examining all the lessons they learned on their first Alaska trip.
2: There were so many points at this trip where we were like, we've done the hard part. It's going to get easier from here. It's all downhill from here. Um, And that was never the case. Not once were we right about that. We were wrong every single time. It only got harder. The oversight was we didn't expect
3: for the unexpected and we had left weather windows for storm days and all these things to account for non-foreseeable events but we really didn't understand what the unexpected was until we experienced how drastically things could change and how quickly
2: such is the nature of the unexpected. And, and that's definitely, <laughs> and that's not a, something we had
3: experienced to no. this extent. Yeah, and it was a, it was a thorough beatdown and one that certainly helped us grow to be, like, much more mature in the mountains and really respect them at a level that we couldn't have even fathomed prior to doing this trip.
1: This time around, Gabe, Ryan, and the other members of their team, they're training more, working through team-building exercises and risk assessment simulations. They're approaching the mountain not as a rigid set of plans, conditions, and skills, but as a dynamic set of constantly shifting circumstances. And looking at the mountain with that kind of fluidity means success can take many different forms.
3: One of the biggest impacts for me post trip was it was really hard because I I was both very proud of the fact we had done a first-ascent expedition and equally ashamed that I didn't technically finish it. I wasn't like proud of it and now I'm super proud of it. Like it it was a big stepping stone for me as a climber and for me as
2: as a human being. I say all the time that it was the best and hardest thing I've ever done in my life, full stop. I learned more in those three weeks than I think I ever could have on any other trip. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done physically, emotionally, top to bottom. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but I got more out of it than I ever, than I think. And that's what we were going up there was to, to put everything we had together and learn a whole lot. And, and we did. And I got so much more out of it than <laughs> I, I expected.
0: Thank you, Ryan and Gabe, for sharing your story. If you want to see a map of Gabe and Ryan's route, you can follow the link on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. It's worth checking out. You can also follow their Denali expedition this spring on Instagram for the official team name, Crampon Cowboys. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. You guys are badass. Love you all. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Bradley Carter, John Berry, Kai Engel, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nise Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and edited by Becca Cajal. Illustration by Walker Cajal, graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Cajal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Kahal and you have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.